Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. This is Boris Karpa. Welcome to New Books in Military History. And today we are going to have a slightly different subject and a slightly different guest. We are talking about a book about the tanks, a book about a tank. It's called IS-2, Development, Design and Production of Stalin's Warhammer. And And whose author is with us today, it's Peter Samsonov. He's written a range of books and articles about Soviet tanks and their combat performance, and he runs a website called uh, called the Tank Archives. Give, I'm happy to see you here, Peter. Well, not see, but I'm happy to have you on board. It's a pleasure to be here. And before I, we continue, the address for the site is tankarchives.ca. For those of us yes. who are following along in, with their computers, a pleasure to have you with us today, Peter. Likewise. And here at this um, at this show, here on the New Books Network, we are creatures of tradition here. And so I'm going to start with a, a traditional question, which is: How did you choose the subject? Why do you, why did you feel that, we, that the world needs another book about the IS-2 tank? Uh, the idea for the topic of this book actually came from Bernard of Military History Visualized. Uh, so the book was published by the Military History Group, which is the uh, publishing company that uh, Bernard started. And uh, they've published a couple of translated manuals. Um, for anyone not, not familiar uh, with uh, his work, uh, Military History Visualized is a very fairly sizable YouTube channel, uh, but uh, they do dip into print media as well. And so uh, Bernard did a video on the IS-2, actually. And at that point, we had collaborated on a number of uh, video and podcast uh, products. And while he was speaking the IS-2 video, I wasn't directly a part of it, but um, we collaborated on sources. And so he was actually quite disappointed with what was available on the IS-2 in the English language. There wasn't really any any good books on it at all. You had uh, some old Osprey titles, I think, which give a very, very surface-level description of the vehicle, uh, but that, that was really it. And I'm sure if you go online um, or read kind of these old old books, they're, they get about as much right, right as they get wrong. And so uh, the the world needed a new English language book written from scratch, uh, just based on based on the primary sources. And if you go in into the back of the book, I think there's about uh, a dozen pages just for bibliography, in addition to all all the footnotes. It's the reason why the, the slogan of the military history group is "footnotes are bust." So the idea was that. Forget everything anyone knew about the IS-2. Go back to the archives. Uh, go back to the designs. Fi- uh, write why, not just what the IS-2 was, but why the IS-2 was, and why um, we actually did a video uh, recently why the IS-2 couldn't not have been made. So why the KV series couldn't continue in its current state. Uh, and there had to be a new generation of Soviet tanks. Well, 
you know, I have some experience doing my own military history research. So I already expect some of what you're going to say, but I'd like to ask for our audience, some of whom are working on their own books or maybe considering becoming writers. Can you tell us about perhaps what the biggest obstacle was for you in working on this book? And, you know, obviously you've overcome it, you've written the book. So can you tell us about this obstacle and how you've overcome it? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say that uh, the amount of misinformation or, you know, these incorrect things that made it into print that I was talking about, uh, that was um, an impediment. So uh, Bernard has a formal education in military history, uh, and I do not. I am an engineer by trade. And so uh, he wanted this. There's the reason why the bibliography is so long, is that he wanted this book to be very, very, very well sourced. And so uh, it's always great to have some primary sources Obviously, that, that you cite in your work, but uh, one of the things that he wanted was citations from secondary sources as well, just to kind of see uh, what what was uh, you know maybe somebody else did some research where you know the document that I found was some kind of outlier or something like that. And so, unfortunately, like I said, a lot of the books in the IS too, and even the ones written in the Russian language that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the access to the archives isn't what it is now, and they were in many ways based on people's memoirs and recollections, um, those there's a lot that's that's wrong. Uh, and uh, Yuri Pashalok, uh, one of the writers whose works I uh, cite heavily, uh, he even has... I guess MythBuster type series of articles that he's written. So I'm not the only one that's uh, that's noticed these these things. But it was, you know, it kind of throws a wrench in, in your works when you did all this research and then you go and you read something that someone else has written uh, and it doesn't quite line up, and you have to figure out, well, you know, why doesn't it? Uh, why doesn't it line up? Right? What? Who's wrong? Am I wrong? Are they wrong? Um, good example is in regards to the KV-9 tank. So uh, I briefly cover this. The first Soviet heavy tank with a 122mm gun was actually designed back in 1941. And in a lot of sources, they'll tell you that this was done to increase the tank's firepower. In reality, that was not the case. And I do have documents to indicate that's not the case. The reason why it was done is because there was no supplies of 76 millimeter, or there was a threat that supplies of 76 millimeter guns would be interrupted due to logistics issues. Um, and so the factory that made the KV evacuated to Chelyabinsk had to figure out some local source of guns, which was in this case a 122 millimeter howitzer, not, not a long gun like on the IS-2. And there is a letter specifically that uh, I have, thanks to Yuri, uh, that says the armor-piercing performance of the 122mm howitzer is inadequate. And so you could show that letter to people who say, oh, this gun had to be replaced because uh, bigger caliber means better armor-piercing performance. Well, it doesn't. Uh, this sounds like a pretty trivial example, but multiply that by, you know, uh, 
the hundred some pages, and uh, it's it's going to be quite a lengthy journey to get to a uh, well researched and uh, well checked book about this topic. Well, you see, I didn't know any of this because I'm not, I don't, you know, my I don't have such a familiarity with this type of literature. So this was quite enlightening to me. Now, just for the sake of our audience, and you know, not to replace your book, of course, but can you just explain for a bit just what is the significance for the IS two? What is its place in you know? The, in the lineup of the, in, you know, in the genealogy of the Soviet tanks, what is the IS-2 other than, oh, it was a heavy tank made in this, in this year? Sure. Uh, so the IS-2, well, it was a heavy tank built between 1943 and 1945. But, uh, and I cover this in the book as well a little bit, Um it was created at a time when there was a pivot in the Soviet tank strategy. So initially, Soviet heavy tanks were just, well, they were regular tanks, but heavier. A tank brigade consisted of uh, some number of heavy tanks, a larger number of medium tanks, and a larger number of light tanks. Um, and they were used kind of all together. Uh, by 1943, you see a shift in tactics where heavy tanks were collected into what was called a um, heavy tank breakthrough regiment. So this was a unit with only 21 heavy tanks, and it was a regiment. It was smaller than a brigade. It had fewer support elements than a brigade, but it fought as a specialist unit. So... You, you would get have these regiments. They would be assigned temporarily to a an army-sized unit. Um, or you, you, sometimes they were subordinate, even directly to the front. Uh, they were used in very specific breakthrough missions. So if the enemy has some kind of very heavy, serious resistance uh, that you need to break through, like a line of fortifications, that's where these heavy tanks were applied. Now... Unfortunately for the Soviets, uh, the Germans by 1942-43, they've kind of they've gotten over the shock, the initial shock of, oh, these KV tanks, these 34 tanks, they have impenetrable armor. We can't get to them with with any of our weapons. They had the 88 millimeter anti-aircraft gun, the uh, Flak 36. They had uh, the 75 millimeter pack 40 was becoming available in sufficient numbers by by the end of 1942 early 43 uh german tanks were starting to get long 75 millimeter guns the tiger had made its appearance on the battlefield and so even though you had these heavy tanks and heavy tank units uh you can't do a very good breakthrough if your armor can't resist the enemy's guns and so the kv was replaced the kv we couldn't Put any more armor on it uh by early 1942 it had reached 50 tons of weight it was suffering from reliability issues uh you, you couldn't just slap more armor on it and call it a day and actually the soviets replaced it with the lighter kv1s which was 42 and a half tons it had the same armor in the front thinner armor on the sides it was more reliable but it was kind of an admission of we screwed up our tank design is in a dead end uh 
we need something radically new. And so work began on this radically new tank where um, it ended up having 120 millimeters of sloped armor in the front. So more armor than a Tiger tank, more armor than a Panther tank at a weight of just 46 tons because of this ruthless prioritization of we need to we need to have a heavy tank with armor that's powerful enough to protect from the Tiger's gun because at that point they had already um, encountered Tiger tanks and a gun powerful enough to defeat the Tiger. And then once the Panther popped up, the requirements were changed to we need a gun powerful enough to defeat the Panther because the Panther's frontal armor was actually more effective. And so by the end um, of 1943, you have this tank with compared to the KV, it's lighter, but it's faster, it's more reliable, it has a much more powerful weapon. Uh, and it's, of course, much more effective on the battlefield. And so the IS-2, the Soviets themselves were actually not super satisfied with it. So it was, they tried to replace it with the IS-3. The IS-3 didn't come out in time before the war ended. Uh, it was still put into production. In turn, the IS-3 was replaced by the IS-4 a year after. Um, and then there was a big change in thinking about heavy tanks after the war. So then the T-10, uh, IS-8 T-10, that tank that came to replace the IS-4 in 1953, I believe. That was the last of the Soviet heavy tanks to be produced. But the IS-2, throughout all this, remained in service. And the IS-2 officially was not written off until the 90s, so until after the USSR collapsed. So this tank remained in service for a very, very, very long time after the war. It was modernized many times. Uh, it was exported to uh, various countries of the Warsaw Pact. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that this success means that almost certainly if you see an IS-2 in a museum that's painted up in World War II colors, it's a post-war tank. It'll have things like night vision, waiting, deep waiting equipment installed. It'll have all these post-war modifications because these tanks were successful enough to have served after the war for quite a number of decades. Certainly, and of course, so I've read, and I'm sure you've read about these tanks being still used, also, uh, you know, dug in as pillboxes on the Russian-Chinese border. Uh, so that's interesting. So that's that's IS-4 tanks. So the IS-4 was found to be rather unsatisfactory because of its weight, and these tanks were dug in. Um, the IS-2 at that point was still kept around as a regular tank and in regular service. So it, it did, in a way, outlive and surpass even the tanks that were supposed to replace it. Which brings me also to an issue of, you know, uh, cultural significance and of course during my visit to Moscow in 2019 you know I visited the, the Central Armed Forces Museum and, I, and quite and at this time you know due to the game uh, World of Tanks which was then still pretty popular you could see people who had um, t-shirts with uh, um, I, all sorts of uh, Russian tanks on them and I think uh, some of the IS tanks were available in the game as high tier tanks, and uh, and of course uh, there is all sorts of uh, fiction and cinema which presents these tanks. 
happened in Russia if it's songs. And so can you tell us a little bit about this tank's cultural significance as an emblem of the war, as an emblem of uh, the Soviet um, participation in the war? Uh, I would say that the IS-2 definitely takes second fiddle to the T-34. Uh, if you look at just JRX symbol of victory, that's definitely the T-34 tank. And you see T-34s installed as monuments um, everywhere. You see them on commemorative memorabilia, on commemorative medals, Um the IS-2 is kind of sidelined. Uh, there are, of course, some monuments. And in, in my book, actually, uh, when I talk about tactical features of the tank, there are photos of, you know, f- photos to illustrate this. And the photos are, of, a lot of them are of monuments. Um, but there might be maybe a dozen of them compared to hundreds of T-34s. So... Uh, it, it it's definitely sidelined, but like you said, uh, World of Tanks, War Thunder, um, these kind of similar video games, they've, they've re- rekindled people's interest in in tanks. Um, specifically, I played World of Tanks for a very long time. Um, yeah, I imagined you would have some familiarity <laughs> with this content. Yeah, um, and the IS two has the misfortune to be seated at tier seven where tier six and tier eight are much more enjoyable, much more popular to play. And so it, it's it's kind of unfairly sandwiched between the T-3485 in tier six, much more fun. Uh, the game is much more balanced at that point. And tier seven is really seen as this kind of, uh, we need to get past this as fast as possible to get to tier eight. Um so the the is two and uh, all the game modes like there's special game modes for tier six, special game modes for tier eight, uh, or at least they used to when I played. I think they were called medium and champion companies, um, and the is two gets you know an, an unfairly sandwiched between these two and left out. But um, if you play Men of War, uh, much more realistic depiction of of tanks in a video game the is2 is absolutely devastating um if you play uh, steel division steel division 2 the is2 is a sort of i think it's the final level uh that you could get in you could only get it in the final phase and it's just you know uh, it could cut through any tank it finds like butter um and that's fair that's realistic uh, but one of the things that my book goes into as well is what what really you don't see, right? Is you have big tank, thick armor, big gun, awesome. Uh, it does go into some detail about you know what's what's behind that armor, what compromises had to be made uh, in, in order to fit such a big gun into such a small, comparatively light tank. And so obviously these these are all the things that uh, in in a popular culture context they don't they don't really show up because. Uh, they're not well. Honestly, they're not very interesting. They're not very inspiring. Uh, if if you want to kind of remember the war, remember people's sacrifice, and or rile up someone to say, "Hey, go go play our awesome game," uh, things like maintenance requirements are kind of uh, incompatible with that. Yes, well, you will have a popular culture will you know simplify things, or it will focus on things which are. More exciting, I might say, to the viewer. 
not to diminish, of course, the very real suffering and very real heroism of people who, you know, sacrificed and participated in World War Two. But what I'd like to just um, refocus a little bit about something minor, which you said. One strength of your book is, in fact, that you talk a bit about the thought process which went into how the tank was designed and how the compromises were made. And so just for the benefit of our audience, can you explain a little bit about what exactly is a heavy tank in terms of the Soviet designers, what they were thinking of when they when they worked on the IS-2. Sure. Uh, so the book actually begins talking about heavy tank design in in the 1920s. So when the USSR was formed, uh, they had a bunch of tanks left over from the white interventionist forces, including the Mark V British heavy tank, which they deemed completely inadequate. It wasn't well-armored enough. It wasn't fast enough. So they had they didn't know what heavy tank they wanted, but they knew that it couldn't look like this. And so there was about a decade of this soul searching, where the army's appetites really outpaced what the industry wanted, uh, or so what's what the industry could provide. Where the industry could provide, you know, like a, a seven ton light tank, and that's really the best they could do. And only by the 1930s, the early 1930s, you see this, they, they kind of meet in the middle where the industry can now provide a heavy tank. The army says, we want this 200 ton monstrosity with five turrets. Uh, for your viewers, if you Google T-39, you'll, you'll see, I think that one got the furthest. It was a wooden mock-up. Um, and it's, it's like, it's, it's a land battleship and industry says, we can't do it. Right. There's this myth about the USSR uh, where Stalin snaps his fingers and everything he said must be done or, you know, all the workers are shot. Uh, if you can't build a 200 ton tank, you, you just can't. You know, there's no there's no amount of shooting people that will get that done. And so the army and the industry compromise and they build another monstrous tank, the T-35 and the T-35 it's ridiculed because of its poor performance in 1941. But in 19, uh, 1932, 1933, when this tank was devised, it was actually quite um, competitive for its time. It's just that in a decade later, all these leaps in technology, uh, leaps in industry have been made. And the USSR realized that this tank, by 1938, they realized that it was inadequate. Its armor was developed to... Um, resist the British three pounder gun to the British 37 millimeter gun, uh, 47 millimeter gun, a relatively low velocity weapon. You couldn't put any more armor in this tank because it was already too heavy. You needed a brand new tank. And that's where the KV-2 comes in. Oh, sorry, the KV-1. Uh, it uses all of the latest and greatest technological advancements. So torsion bars, uh, diesel engine, powerful 600 HP diesel engine, um, this thing has 75 millimeters of armor on it. Uh, it's incredible for its time. Um, they sent a couple of pilot vehicles to Finland to test it out in the battlefield. Very positive outcome. Uh, this tank is accepted into service. 
And as it often happens, you know, the Germans are doing their own thing across the continent. Uh, the Soviets kind of, there's no illusion, despite the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, there's no illusions that there is going to be a war. And, you know, this pact bought a year or two at most. So Soviet intelligence is kind of digging around in, in the German dumpsters and whatnot. And they hear rumors of these super heavy tanks. Um, and these are these t- tanks are armed with 88mm guns, 105mm guns. Uh, they have all this this incredible armor. And if you compare it to what we now know about German tank projects, it's a very distorted view of, of projects like the VK-3601 and VK-6501. But it was enough to scare the army into ordering the KV-3, KV-4, KV-5. These, again, I- incredible monsters weighing 100 tons, 200 tons. And the, 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 the thing is, the, arm, the army, or the, the industry actually tried. They tried to, they started development of the of these tanks. Uh, KV-3, if the Germans hadn't invaded, would, there would have been a prototype in 1941. And they were already driving tanks around. Uh, heavy tank prototypes loaded down to 70 tons to simulate the weight. So, it was possible that the USSR would have developed such a heavy tank. But as I mentioned before, they didn't have time to do it. Um, the best they could do is add additional armor to the KV. So bolt on armor um, to increase its armor to uh, 90 millimeters all around um, or 100 millimeters. The thickness of this armor as the war began, you know, you put on whatever armor you had. Uh, available, so sometimes that was just 75 millimeters of armor. So you had 75 base plus 75 applique armor, 150 millimeters of armor, side armor, mind you. So these absolutely colossal KV tanks driving around um, to replace what the army really wanted, which was the KV-3, KV-4, KV-5. Um, now... That, in addition to all the other wartime simplifications, plus the KV-1's gun got upgraded in August of 1941. They went from the short-barreled 76mm F-32 to the long-barreled ZIS-5. And so all of these changes uh, increased the weight of the KV-1 tank to over 50 tons. Uh, Initially, so the KV um, pilot tank, the U-0, that went into Finland, it weighed... 42 and a half tons or 42 tons, something like that. And so this increase of weight in almost 10 tons really negatively impacted reliability, especially in winter. Uh, And so, as I said before, the army really had to go back to the drawing board and say, we can't iterate on this design anymore. We need something absolutely brand new. Um, The project at the time was called KV-13. It was a 30 ton tank with 120 millimeters of front armor, uh, which, you know, for for the 1940s, for the early 40s, was incredible. Uh, This tank was... They built it, they tested it, uh, they built a new prototype, they tested it, and then the Tiger comes out. And so the armor of this tank, 120 millimeters, uh, it was actually based on the requirement of protection against the 88mm Flak 36 gun. So the Soviets knew all about that, and the Tiger has the same gun. Well, great. Uh, Our tank is is still well protected. However, the Tiger's armor was quite a bit thicker. 
than what the Germans deployed previously. So the ZIS-5 gun was perfectly fine against the Panzer IV, which had 50 millimeters of front armor, uh, vertical, not sloped. So you can penetrate that really at uh, any effective fighting range at like two kilometers. The Tiger has twice as much. The Tiger has 100 millimeters of armor. The ZIS-5 doesn't penetrate it at any range. And so there was this panic. Uh, we need our, our new tank needs a bigger gun. Okay, well, we have that. We have an 85 millimeter gun. Uh, work on that was happening as early as 1940. Great. Uh, put that in. Oh, it doesn't fit. Make the turret bigger. Make the chassis longer. Uh, the 30, 30 ton tank now became a 45 ton tank. But as I said, this uh, 30 ton tank became a 45 ton tank. Um, and the army was really, 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 really carefully monitoring its weight because, uh, again, as I, as I mentioned before, even the 85 millimeter gun quickly became inadequate uh, when the Panther and the Ferdinand as well, because the Ferdinand was taken as a very serious threat. When these tanks were encountered at the Battle of Kursk in the summer of 1943, the 85 millimeter gun very quickly became inadequate. Uh, before the IS-1 had even entered production. And so this larger, heavier 122mm gun needed to defeat these tanks, it could fit in the same turret, um, but there was a real worry about the weight um, to the point where the IS-2 prototype, the Object 240 that went into trials, it was stripped down of everything that wasn't just absolutely necessary. Like, they took the machine guns out, um just to really make sure that the chassis wasn't overloaded. Uh, and it wasn't. It, it actually, the, the, the mass of the gun really didn't impact um, the performance of the tank. And it only went up from 45 to 45 and a half tons. So still quite light in comparison. Um, in post-war modernizations, the IS-2, as its predecessor, did climb to a weight of 50 tons, but like I said, it, uh, it was designed to be much more reliable to begin with, and so it, it w didn't encounter reliability problems uh, like its predecessor did. But uh, yeah, the the IS-2 is it's a product of its time. It's a product of this evolution. Um, the army wasn't fully satisfied with it, but uh, they also kind of understood the realities that we can't put, you know, a massive rail gun in the turret. Uh, you see these fictional designs in the video games of an IS-2 tank with a 152mm gun in the turret. There was actually explicit orders to not do that because the gun was bigger, the gun was heavier. Uh, the 152 actually had poorer penetration because it was a gun howitzer. It was a shorter barrel uh, than the 122. So the the 122 D25 gun... Um, it kind of it was in that balance of being a very very powerful weapon, but actually still fairly compact. Uh, so it uh, the the army, you know, they wanted a higher rate of fire, which they did get. They wanted more penetration, which they didn't get. There were projects, but none of them were successful. Um, but uh, it was sort of satisfactory, and that's. There's a big section about improvements to the IS-2 in, in, in my book. Um, and there is a, a trend where a lot of the time the army requests something, the industry works on it, and they say 
it, to implement this improvement, it'll negatively impact some other aspect of the design. So we have to settle for something that um, is is adequate. It's acceptable, uh, but it's not. You know, it's not perfect. But that's that's uh, that's the best we could do in order to you know keep the tank as good as it is and produced in in the numbers that it's produced in. Well, this brings us around, and and I think this brings us around to another traditional question. And as I mentioned, we're creatures of tradition here, so you know this is a show by readers for readers, and I'd like to ask you. What are you reading right now? Is there anything you could maybe suggest to our listeners? Uh, I I fall into the trap of doing a lot more a lot more writing than reading these days. Um, when I do read, it is it is pr- primary documents for the most part and reports um, from you know uh, uh, various sources. Um, but the good news is that uh, primary sources have never been more available. Uh, so as I mentioned, the Military History Group uh, does publish manuals, translated manuals. Um, they had a couple of German ones, uh, both for tanks, for air, um, the Stuka manual, I believe. Uh, they had a um, assault squad, something like that, where it's a, a assault platoon. Uh, tactics manual, a German one. Uh, recently, they came out with Tank Assault, which is a translated Soviet tactics manual, um, which there is a limited edition, uh, bilingual edition, uh, with the original Russian on one side and then the English translation on the other side. Um, so if you know any of your readers are really interested by this kind of idea of going to the primary sources and seeing what the people at the time were writing about uh, their own tanks. That's uh, uh, definitely a very good option. So what I'd like to say here is, of course, you know, since you're already working on a new book, I'm going to say here that you already finished writing it when it's out. You're welcome on our show again. And I will be happy to have you here again. Thank you for being here with us, Peter. Well, thank you for inviting me.